The border between the United States and Canada presents a unique national security challenge. Yet, when folks talk about border security in Washington, D.C., they almost always focus on the southern border. And while we have real challenges that need to be addressed at our border with Mexico, we cannot lose sight of what lies to the north. A border that sees the largest exchange of goods and people anywhere in the world. It's 5,500 miles long and sees 400,000 people and 1.6 billion in goods and services across it each and every day. This unique border requires a strategic plan to defend it. But when I came to Washington, I was alarmed to find that the northern border was often treated as an afterthought. That's why I worked on a bipartisan bill to require a comprehensive threat assessment of the northern border. That bill led to the Department of Homeland Security releasing an updated northern border strategy this past June. I recently convened a meeting of Customs and Border Protection officials, as well as local and tribal law enforcement, to discuss this new strategy and gain their input on how best to implement it. Today, we'll hear from two people with intimate knowledge of the northern border and its challenges. Mary DeLackey served 16 years as the area port director at Pembina, North Dakota, the busiest port of entry in the state and one of the top five busiest ports along the U.S.-Canadian border, with over a million private commercial vehicles passing through it every year. Mary was a great partner as I worked to pass legislation requiring an updated northern border threat assessment, and I'm so glad she's able to give us her upfront perspective on what Customs and Border Protection agents need to keep our communities safe and strong. Mary, you spent years along the northern border. How did the challenges and work of Customs and Border Protection along the border change over that time period? Oh, they changed significantly. When I started, I was I was with the United States Customs Service, and of course after 9-11, that all changed as they merged the U.S. Customs Service, U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, as well as the Department of Agriculture. All of those agencies, you know, combined into one under DHS, and of course that momentum that that drove us for the next several years, of course, resulted in incredible increased security, increased um, officer presence, as well as just the, the technology that we had available to us, as well as just that whole mindset of the American people really, uh, for the first time, really recognizing that this border needed to be secure and that we needed to have people trained and the the proper tools available to those officers. Yeah, it's interesting because when I first came and I would talk about the northern border, people just didn't seem to even want to listen. Um, and and you just want to say this is a huge border. This is when you push on the south border, southern border. When you close off the maritime border, people are going to find a way to get in, and we need to make sure that we're resourced. Why do you think it's so hard to get attention to the issues that we have on the northern border? Well, I think. First of all, just kind of a lack of, of information for, for most people that don't travel very much or really don't even acknowledge that that border is, you know, is even there. I think as a general... 
certainly that hasn't changed in the last 20 years. The northern border, Canada is a friendly country. We think of them as our as our partners in whether it's trade or just in tourism, and we don't. Most people don't think of it as a threat, and I, I think that's a big mistake. And you're exactly right. As we kind of you know put more focus on the airports, the seaports, the southwest border, all of a sudden you know people start to think, well. We can fly to Toronto. We can get into Vancouver. We can drive a car. We can drive a truck. We can fly an airplane right over that border. I, mean, I just think it's a lack of information that most people just take for granted is that nothing's going to happen there, and that's a huge mistake. Well, I think I think you hit the nail on the head when you said a lot of people look at Canada and say, well, you know, they're friendly. It's you know, and I I'm guilty too. I always say, you know, Manitoba and Saskatchewan to North Dakota is no different than someone from Minnesota and South Dakota. But that doesn't mean that we can we we should not recognize that that's an international border and it needs to be protected. Um, if you could if you could give me three suggestions on what we could do to improve um, northern border security, what would they be, Mary? I think it would be a real um, in-depth overview of what kind of traffic, whether it's passenger, whether it's commercial, whether it's even agriculture traffic, is actually coming across that border and acknowledge that that, that trade and that tourism and those, those passengers that are arriving are, are critical, not only to the United States, but also to our security and understanding who those people are and what they're doing and what we're actually accomplishing by having a border station there and talking to these individuals, looking at what they're bringing in, having those, those difficult conversations. And then, you know, we must acknowledge that 90-plus percent of the people and the commodities that cross that border are completely legitimate. We're trying to focus in on that small, small cadre of individuals or commodities that actually pose a risk to the United States. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think we need to have technology enhancements on the northern border. This we need to have our x-ray systems in place. We need to have our radiation portals in place. They need to be operational. We need to have good secondary exam facilities so that the officers can do a quick and thorough you know, exam, not only of commercial traffic, but of passengers in their vehicles and quickly move them on their way. And, of course, then we need to have the information and the intel that allows us to focus in on those individuals that mean to do us harm and that should not be allowed into the United States. Well, you know, Mary, I was just at uh, in Minot and I did a roundtable and I was recalling the times when I was attorney general and we used to go up to the border, whether it was Pembina or Cavalier or any place along the border. And when we did intels back and forth with, with law enforcement, whether it was county or city law enforcement, state drug enforcement, you know, always the Royal Canadian Mounties were down and, and Customs and Border Protection. And, you know, one thing that I asked um, uh, when we, we went around was exactly what you're saying is a a greater and more systematic sharing of intel what are we seeing on either side of the border and and i think in some ways the enhanced um kind of security that we have has kind of erected maybe even more borders law enforcement to law enforcement. And so, you know, I, I promised that I would do everything that I could to get back to that, um, that collegiality that we've had with our neighbors to the north. And I know, you know, coming up to Pembina, I've seen the great work that you've done in collaboration with the, with the Canadian immigration and uh, border protection folks. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where you are right, right now with Canada and how improving that relationship might help on both sides of the border. Well, I've been retired for about a year and a half, but I, I have every...
remains robust, at least in the North Dakota, Manitoba, Saskatchewan area. I'm, I'm not able to speak to other areas on the border. But that's one thing that we worked really, really diligently on was building that rapport and that sharing of information, whether it's with local law enforcement, we have to have them, whether it's the sheriff's office, it's the you know the county, whatever it happens to be on the U.S. side versus the Canadian side, whether it's the RCMP or even Canada Customs and Revenue Agency, that that relationship needs to be strong. We need to have faith in one another. We need to be able to trust one another. As you know, there's a lot of space between the border stations and even at the border stations where we maybe only have two officers working at any given time. We need to rely on our our partners, the Canadians, whether it's the RCMP or Customs, and of course our local law enforcement agencies as well as the Office of Border Patrol. All of that those agencies need to work together in order to make sure that the borders are secure. And thankfully, that that was in place when I left, and I have, like I said, every reason to believe it continues to be a, a really dynamic dialogue where we share information very quickly, and that information gets to the necessary people so that it allows us to do our jobs. Well, it, you know, we have an advantage on the northern border, and that is a um, kind of uh, relationship with the Canadian national authorities, with the local authorities in Canada that I mean, I'm not trying to put down the federales or any of the um, cross-border law enforcement, but we know that that relationship in terms of trust and sharing intel um, is much stronger on the northern border, and we could really beef up our northern border security by continuing to do the things you did, Mary, when you were there, which is working to co-locate and work with our Canadian counterparts. It was a it was a seamless kind of operation, and I think a lot of people, if they saw it, you know, would say this is the way to go because we can really almost double the manpower power by working together. But we've got to continue to have positive relationships with our neighbors to the north. You know, it was interesting, Mary, because one of the one of the things that um, the northern border threat assessment um, basically concluded was that one of the greatest threats was not one-directional flow of drugs, but bi-directional flow of drugs across the border. Um, And I think um, one of the things that I'm hearing without giving too much information is that um, with the southern border um, uh, becoming uh, hopefully more secure as time goes on, that there's a lot of concern about the northern border um, seeing drugs come across. And we've talked about the fentanyl market coming down from Canada and the post office. Maybe we can talk a little bit about drug enforcement and the kinds of things that you've seen that have changed over the years. I think that we always had the understanding as, as customs officers, customs inspectors, in the early years of my career that if we ever got the technology, you know, to x-ray the commercial vehicles that came in or to do in-depth probes on gas tanks, perhaps, or look for special compartments inside of, of vehicles that were crossing the border, that, you know, that would be the key to our success. But then we would find all of these drugs that were coming across the border. And during was the airport director and even an officer with customs, you know, in my, I guess, in the late 80s and early 90s, we saw a lot of personal use, but it was very rare or uncommon for us to actually find a big load. I mean, one of the biggest loads we ever found was actually just in the trunk of someone that was coming across the border, you know, open up the trunk and here's 100 and 
plus pounds of marijuana that he was intending to take to Canada but had gotten lost. <laughs> so that was like a funny story. But one of the, the biggest loads that was ever caught at Pemina was actually in the false compartment of a, of a, a semi-tractor where the, the floor had been built so that you could lay all of these all of the marijuana inside of it and built this, this fake floor over the top. And that was a direct result, really, of having not only really good x-ray systems and, and being able to identify that there was something wrong with that that trailer and, and how it looked, but also really you cannot replace the officer. That officer is trained. They understand what to look for. Of course, the intel and our our systems, our technology systems allow us to kind of hone in on something that's not right or maybe an infrequent traveler, but it's changed in that, you know, we went from this understanding that we were going to see so much when we actually found and got the technology to now yeah. relying more on intel. I think uh, the first challenge is getting attention. And um, certainly, Certainly, you got my attention very early on, Mary, um, when I was able to come up to Portal and see the great work that you do. But um, we know that uh, censoring equipment's getting more and more sophisticated, that we can move more and more commercial traffic through if we have the right kind of equipment, and we need to invest in that technology. And I think your point is really well taken. As we look at deploying resources to to all of our borders to enhance border security, um, you know, the thing, Customs and Border Protection will always tell us is that the vast majority of illegal drugs come across at the points of entry. And we can't just secure, you know, the the wide open spaces, but those points of entry are so critical to stopping, you know, to to contributing to stopping illegal trafficking of drugs, illegal trafficking of people, um, and and the potential of doing great injury, honestly, to our egg um, markets and our egg commodities by allowing in uh, certain uh, foodborne um, bacteria or, or a fungus or, or other things that um, somebody may invent that would actually um, do incredible damage to our egg uh, market. And so, you know, you guys stood on, stood on the wall and you um, protected our state. And I am so extraordinarily grateful to everyone who puts on a blue and green uniform and who defends our borders and protects our, our security of our country. And Mary, you're among the finest I've met. And it's an honor to know you. Oh, well, thank you so much. And please just continue your, your great work for the state of North Dakota, but also for the, the United States, Heidi. We really are just so grateful when we have the support and the voice, really, of our, our senators, of our, our congressmen. That helps us to get our jobs done and to protect the American people. You bet. Take care, Mary. Next up, we have Porter Fox with us, who recently released a book, Northland, and it chronicles his 4,000-mile journey along the northern border. Porter traveled by canoe, car, freighter, and foot, and his experience illustrates the vastness of the northern border and what needs to be done to protect it. Porter, you're an amazing guy. Thanks so much for sharing your incredible journey with the hot dish. And so I'm curious, because those of us who grew up in places like North Dakota who have spent a lot of time on the northern border, um, we've kind of gone accustomed to the topography, accustomed to kind of accepting that Canada is is our closest ally and, you know, we have nothing to fear from Canadians. So we don't stand on guard the way we do in other parts of the world on borders. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about 
given given your work, what was the biggest surprise that you had traveling those 4,000 miles? Uh, well, first, thanks so much for having me. Um, and it's really great to be here talking to one of the few others that are uh, bringing attention to a lot of issues on the northern border that, that really need to be dealt with. Um, you know, I grew up in northern Maine, a very different topography. I grew up on an island close to the water section of the border. Um, the border back there runs through rivers and lakes, very small streams, um, in the deep, deep woods of northern Maine, which is a, a north woods or a 12 million acre stretch of largely roadless area that's very hard to patrol and keep secure. Um, at the same time, it's of business. There's a tremendous number of cross-border businesses there, be it timber or fishing, uh, you know, uh, processing pulpwood and whatnot. Um, you know, the biggest surprise that I found, I would say, when I was even in my home state of Maine, um, straight across through the Great Lakes, through the Northern Plains, and even out into uh, Washington and the Cascades and whatnot, is that every time I visited the border every time I, I went to the line, and I was kind of ranging within 100 miles of it the whole time, going back and forth documenting this North Country. Uh, when I went to the line, I would just see the most bizarre things in northern Vermont, uh, this apartment building that straddles the line where Americans who are dating Canadi- Canadians historically have gotten their apartment there. You get a room there. That's where you can meet up. There's a door on the Canadian side and a door on the American side, and nobody really cares. It's not not that big of a deal. Um, up in northern Maine, there's a pulpwood factory literally built over the St. John River. Half of it is in Canada. Half of it is in the U.S. for many, many years. It's just operated as a typical factory. Now there is a line painted on the floor down through the middle of the factory. A tremendous amount of paperwork and, and really additional cost um, to them to operate that factory. Um, and so you have situations like that, and then you have so many situations that, again, I saw all the way across the border, where the border was, A, it was not marked. It was, if it was guarded, it was from these uh, remote cameras and, and motion sensors and whatnot, um, but the, the ports of entry and the CBT were so far away that routinely people slip across. They get caught on camera or a trip of motion detector, but CDP can't get there in time. And they openly acknowledge that. So those two things were probably the most surprising for me. I, I think, you know, people have an idea about the northern border, but your description of Maine, I was thinking that's pretty much what you would see in parts of Minnesota, but certainly not what you would see in North Dakota, where it would be wide open. In fact, I've seen uh, yeah. that the the border uh, markers, basically farmers farming around them on both sides, you know, yeah, they, yeah they're, they're, you know, <laughs> they're getting away. Yeah, I mean, they get in the way, those markers. And, and, you know, you get a couple extra bushels, that makes could make the difference between making it or breaking it. And so well, I think yeah. I think that we, we share common heritage, um, you know, a lot of relatives across the border. Um, uh, Pat Leahy is always proud to say that he, he married a Canadian. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of family that that cross the borders and and share a cultural heritage and and I think that it 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 becomes kind of that sleepy thing that we say oh it's Canada you know it's just Canada and and I think it it does ignore the potential threats and when you're looking at this if you if you 
said, um, if somebody said, oh, well, you know, um, we shouldn't spend any money um, on the northern border because we've got the southern border that's problematic or we need to beef up the Coast Guard to take care of our maritime borders, give me the best argument for why we need to do a better job with border security in the northern border. Well, you can just look to the FBI, you know, whose papers document that there have been more terrorist suspects apprehended in the north than in the south for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. It makes perfect sense. It's the path of least resistance. There's different immigration policies in place in Canada. That's how they run their country. It does, for a Mexican citizen does not require a visa. They can take a $300 flight into Toronto. And they can walk across the border if that's, if that's what they want. Uh, you know, another case, you know, you have your terrorists, you have a tremendous amount of um, drug smuggling, of human trafficking, um, especially on there's a dozen Indian reservations on the northern border. And, you know, because of jurisdiction issues there, um, it, it almost opens the door for opioids flowing south from Canada into the north country. Um, which has really just wreaked havoc on northern communities. And, and, I, and I'll say again that, you know, another shocking thing for me in, in my world, in the media world, I just can't believe how underreported a lot of these stories were. You know, you, you come out with this terrific new Northern Border Security uh, Act, and DHS, you know, finally follows up and comes up with a new strategy and, and putting in an implementation plan. You can't find that anywhere in the news. I, I had to, you know, I, I wrote a book about it, and I'm searching and searching, trying to find, you know, where are the documents? What do they say? When did it come out? Why was it late? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like that. And um, it, it's just very surprising to me how little attention is given to it. And I, I do think it's because we historically take Canada for granted and don't see Canada as a threat. But what some Americans and politicians aren't seeing is that, um, sure, the country of Canada might not be a threat, but the people who are coming into Canada might be a direct threat against the United States. I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things that that I do since I've uh, been in office is I have a strategy. It's called my look-up strategy. We're dealing with today's problems, and a lot of that is focused on the southwest border. But if you look at uh, the border on the Rio Grande or the border in, uh, you know, across the deserts and um, the the terrain of New Mexico and and Arizona and going into California, you say, okay, we're going to really make this border much more impenetrable, and which I agree with. But what's going to happen with that traffic? It's going to find the point of least resistance. You know, we always say exactly. it's, it's you, you push on a balloon someplace, it's going to pop out someplace else. And, you know, I, I feel kind of the same way about our maritime borders because I hear constantly, we're going to take money away from the Coast Guard so, and, and put it to, to beef up border security on the Southwest. I'm like, that's absolutely the wrong strategy. We should be looking at a 50-state border strategy that protects our borders and, and, you know, recognizes that every place is a threat, a potential threat. Absolutely. Your northern border is more than twice as long as the southern border. There are thousands of miles of forested borderland where they do this 20-foot-wide cut through the forest. But when you're not in that cut, you're completely hidden by trees. It is extremely dense forest. The northern border goes over 8,000-foot peaks. 
through the North Cascades, through the Rockies, across four of the five Great Lakes. Again, these little streams and, and rivers in Maine that are just impossible. I traveled along them. It was so hard to get there and to travel along the line there. It's almost impossible to patrol without some more resources, without more funding, uh, more technology, uh, more work with local authorities um, and, and even local populations through that grapevine security, at least in northern Maine and across a lot of the, the Northlands. You know, those local communities are kind of the, the, the last line of defense. Yeah, I mean, um, you you see it everywhere, and Senator Tester and I always say this: Look, you've got to have a presence out there because you have to work with the local ranchers, the local farmers, the local fishermen. In your case, yeah. the local you know um, uh, folks who who timber for a living. You know, we've we've got to get to a place where we recognize that if we are going to have border protection, it isn't solely focused on the southwest border. We have got to have border protection on all of our borders. and Exactly, because they'll just find their way in. That's right. And your work is so important, and your book is so important to continue to make that point. I, I've, I know a lot of people on the southwest border, and a lot of the... A lot of the ranchers down there have the same concerns that uh, ranchers would have in Montana or that farmers would have in North Dakota, which is, you know, if I see something, who do I call and how do I know that because you're fairly isolated. And one of the things that we've been really pushing is something you raised, which is a greater kind of level of collaboration an official relationship um, with with our sheriffs and with our chiefs of police and with our state police. Um, you know, Stone Garden is is critical, and it's a it's a plus up multiplier for um, uh, securing the northern border and securing the southwest border. It's essential, and every CBP person that I spoke with said that. They said, "Well, thank God for these communities because they keep an eye on everything." Uh-huh. Um, but you're right, they don't always know who to call. It's, it's an unofficial relationship. In certain parts of the border, um, CBP is somewhat secretive and, and doesn't make those relations. And um, it's just missing out on a, a huge resources. These folks have been there, a lot of them in the North Country. It's unique in that they've been there for seven, eight, nine generations. They know the backcountry. They know where the bootlegging roads are. They know... What the where the waterways go and how someone would travel through there and, and it's, a, it's a really huge resource that they're missing out on. Yeah, it's it's funny that you would say the bootlegging uh, roads because we all know if you lived in the north um, during the during the time of prohibition, most of the illegal. Uh, 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 liquor that came into the country came in through Canada. And, Absolutely. You know, we have, and, and it's interesting because there's, uh, North Dakota has legends involving tunnels and legends involving canoes on the Red River. You know, we have a river that flows north into um, into Manitoba, and the, yep. the traffic there for illegal liquor um, during Prohibition was absolutely what happened. And so these, yeah. it, it's, it's, you know, if you want to look at, um, you know, can't ever have that you can't see a major inflow of illegal goods. All you have to do is is remember what happened in the uh, during the time of prohibition and know that a lot of contraband um, did at that point and still today comes in through the northern border. Absolutely, and it still does in northern Maine. Those bootlegging roads are still there's hundreds of them through the forest. 
I know. So you don't have to walk across the border with a backpack. You can just drive a Jeep, <laughs> you know, and, and out on the water, you know, that stretch of border that goes from uh, Eastport and Lubeck, Maine, the easternmost point of the U.S., continental U.S., you know, when it goes out to sea, that's still a gray area. That line is still in dispute. And, and you can see in the headlines today, um, the lobstermen between Nova Scotia and Maine are having huge disputes over that. CBP is raiding Canadian boats, making sure they're not smuggling things across the border, which they historically never have. Um, you know, it, it's it's a bit of a, a mess up there in the, in the Northeast. And, and again, in the Northwest as well, there's there's huge issues between salmon fishermen up there about, well, where is the line? Yeah. They, they don't know. They're conflicting treaties and, and, and conflicting language. Well, so it's, that, that it's interesting. We, we, we also have a problem on the northern border that they don't have on the southern border, which is our waterways freeze. And that creates yeah. a whole other conduit for, for um, people moving illegal contraband and, and potentially drugs and human trafficking. Absolutely. And of course, the border follows the deep water marks through lakes and rivers. Well, the deep water mark is constantly shifting, which on a little river doesn't make too much, you know, of a problem. But on a big lake or a big river, it certainly does. It could be, you know, 100, 200 feet either side. And when you're getting arrested for drifting across that line in a fishing boat by accident, that really becomes, you know, a big problem. Yeah, I, I, I think um, the one thing that, that we've been able to do with our Northern Borders Strategy Bill is raise awareness. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because the uh, Committee on Homeland Security that I serve on, um, we have more representation of the Northern Border than the Southern Border. And so I think the fact that, um, you know, Gary Peters and Ron Johnson and Heidi Heitkamp and John Tester and Maggie Hassan and, you know, that you, I can go through all of the representation on the Northern Border, Danes, uh, Hoven, um, they, they now have an idea that it might be in their best interest to pay attention to the Northern Border. But your work has been uh, so critical in raising awareness and, and making sure that people understand understand the unique challenges of the northern border. And I really thank you. You did great well, thank, work. Thank, thank, uh, thank you. And, and same back to you. I think your group that you just named there are really some of the few and, and you spearheading it that have brought much needed attention there from everything from border security to cross-border trade and travel and, and um, you know, really trying to create a, a very unique and specific policy for this border because it's a very very unique border. We've been talking to Porter Fox, the author of Northland, a 4,000-mile journey along America's forgotten border. Thanks so much. Let's continue to stay in touch and work for better border security for our northern neighbors. Thank you. We need to make sure that the priorities of the northern border are met. I'll keep working with DHS as well as their critical local, state, and federal partners to make sure that the new northern border strategy is properly implemented. As my guests illustrate today, it's a complex border with complex security needs. And if we're not doing everything we can to meet them, then we're not doing our job to keep all North Dakotans strong and safe. Thanks for listening to this Helping of the Hot Dish.